Well, good morning, Hillside Christian Fellowship. Hope you are having a wonderful Sunday at your home or wherever you are watching on Facebook or YouTube. We are so stoked that we get to do church with you over the internet. I want to say thank you to our worship team and all those who are serving behind the scenes to make these live services happen every single week. And today we are continuing our series through the book of Acts in our mini-series, God-Sized Blank. Our first little series within that little series is God-sized promises, and today is going to be week three of that series. The first one was the promise of the Paracletos, then we looked at the promise of power, and today we're going to look at the promise on Pentecost. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, and if you have your Bibles, pull them out to Acts chapter 2, grab a notebook, get ready to take some notes. We're going to be having fun this morning as we look at what God's Word has to say to us and what that practical application is for us in our everyday life as spirit-filled believers. But before we dive into Acts chapter 2, being the guy that I am, being the fact that I love history, being the fact that every time I read the Bible or anytime I read any book, whether it's the Chronicles of Narnia, the Cimmerillion, the Lord of the Rings, even the Redwall series, I, every time I see a character's name, I have to be like, who is this character? Why are they here? What's their backstory? And I just love the development of characters. I think it's why I love the fantasy genre of books so much. And when it comes to the Bible, there are so so many epic backstories to all the different characters. In Acts chapter 1, we spent a lot of time looking at the promise of the Paracletos and, and, and really that promise of the Holy Spirit that we see there in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And we looked at the promise of power that comes with it. But there's this little bit at the end of Acts chapter 1 that I really want to just touch on this morning briefly as kind of the intro into the service. And it's this time where the disciples, they're looking to replace Judas. Judas has uh, betrayed Jesus uh, over to the Pharisees and to the temple, and Judas had remorse. Judas goes and he commits suicide, and, and he tries to hang himself, but the rope breaks and he falls, and he has a really bad episode and dies there in the potter's field. And they're trying to replace Judas. So what do they do? They cast lots and they're going to see, is it going to be Barsabbas or is it going to be Matthias? And the lots fall on Matthias. And both these guys were amazing, amazing followers of Christ. They had been guys who were walking with Jesus during his ministry. They weren't a part of the 12. Some scholars would believe they were a part of the 70 or 72, depending on what Greek manuscript you were looking at. But these were guys who knew Jesus. They, 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 they knew the word of God and they were passionate. And so they were put up, these two were put up to be the candidates to be the person who would take Judas's place amongst the 12 uh, there with the 11. And lots, they fell on Matthias. And some questions come up about this. This is the last we really hear of Matthias and all of Scripture. What happened to Matthias? What did he go on to do? We hear about all the other of the 12, but Matthias, we don't really know much about him. There's some early church documents that say he went on and he, he started churches here and there, but then maybe he, he went a little bit astray. There's one early church document that says the Nicolaitans were actually the followers of the teachings of Matthias and that he was an early first century heretic. Uh, uh, we, we don't really know 
We don't really know who Matthias was. Uh, There are those who say the disciples, they jumped the gun and they cast lots and they should have just waited because Paul was going to replace him. And whether that's the case or not, uh, we have here a gentleman who becomes an apostle. And it, it, it makes us ask the question about apostles. You have the original apostles, those who were the 12 disciples, uh, but are there more apostles? Can you have more apostles than just the 12? They were looking to elect someone into this apostleship. And it's, it's kind of a double-edged question, uh, because on the one hand, the answer is no. But then on the other side, uh, in function, yes, you can have many apostles. And so Really, there were those who were distinctive, who were set apart, and and signs and wonders followed them there in the first century. They were the apostles who were there with Jesus. But in function, the Greek word apostelos uh, is those who are sent, those who go and they do a new work of ministry in a new place. It actually is a Greek word for someone who was a messenger, someone who would go and and bring great news wherever they went. And, And so... In that sense, you do have more apostles. Paul is called the apostle to the Gentiles. Barnabas, his companion, is called an apostle. Timothy is called an apostle. Silvanus is called an apostle. You even have female apostles mentioned in the New Testament. The apostle Junia, who who there, who was in Rome, Paul writes, and he even addresses her in his his farewell there in the book of Romans. And so there, there are more apostles in function, in that functional aspect of apostles continues on throughout church history. You have guys like St. Patrick, who was known as the apostle to Ireland, and you have many other apostles, and that apostolic work is still alive today in the church, in missionaries, and church planters, and those who are doing a new revitalizing work in the church. Even in these new avenues of doing church on the internet, there's an apostolic move in the church. So, There was the original apostles, and that office is closed, but then there's the functional continuance of the office of apostle. And so that's just some interesting thing. Uh, The apostles will see later in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that they continued on in the apostles' doctrine. And so what's the apostles' doctrine? And we know from church history that these early apostles, those who had followed Jesus and those who were apostolic in their function in the early church, they comprised a group of teachings and, and really a manual for what it meant to be a pastor and a church leader there in the uh, the, the, the early church in the first century. And there's a document that is actually known to history today. It's, it was in wide circulation throughout all of the early church. Uh, some scholars would say it was written as early as 42 AD. And it's this group of, of really teachings uh, and instructions on how you can tell when someone is a false apostle, when someone is a false teacher, what to look for in their ministry to really know what they are by the fruit that they bear. And there's some really good things in it. And it's a a, a text, an ancient document known as the Didache, uh, which literally just means the teaching. And it is known in the early church as the teaching of the 12. It's great. You can grab it on Amazon. It's super cheap. You can read it for free on the internet. There's some super good stuff in there. And this literally, this is apostles doctrine. This is some of the things that they were teaching, and the true apostles' doctrine that the core of all their message was, was what we have as the Old Testament, and then as Paul's letters and the Gospels began to be written, and these were circulated throughout the church, we see the the church being strengthened by the teaching of the apostles. And so all of that, that's just an intro 
in a close to chapter one as we're about to dive into chapter two. And in chapter two, we're going to see something occur, something amazing occur in the life of the church. We're going to see the birth of the church, the church having its birthday. This is the, the this is the delivery room. This is the birth of the church, and some amazing things are going to occur. And we're going to see the disciples, these the, the, these fishermen who uh, who who they had, they'd followed Jesus for three years, and and they weren't the most eloquent of folks. We'll see them from this point on. They are full of boldness, full of purpose, and they are going to be declaring the word of God with such great boldness. And we are going to see the church go from just this little entity of 120 to 3,120 to 5,000 to the addition stops and the multiplication begins and we have the church full-fledged doing some amazing things. We're going to see these disciples operating this way because of two very important things, a new presence and a new power. What's the new presence? Well, they'd seen the risen Christ. He is There in their midst, he ascends into heaven and he tells them to wait in Jerusalem a little bit longer for the promise that is to come. And we learned about that on week one of our mini-series, the promise of the parakletos, the promise of the Holy Spirit, and that is the new power that they receive. And so here we are, Acts chapter two. Let's dive in. Enough of my talking about history. There's much more of that to come in this sermon, so we'll save that for later. But this is what it says, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all in one accord in one place. Let's pray, and then let's dive into God's word. Dear God, we just thank you so much. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. God, we thank you that your word cuts through the bone and the marrow into the soul and to the spirit and reveals to us the motives and the intents of our heart. God, we pray that tonight or this morning, Lord, that, 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 that you would speak to us through your word. God, that we would be encouraged, that we would be inspired, that we would be built up in our most holy faith because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God, I pray that these would not be my words, but God, that you would speak through. God, that the very same Holy Spirit that empowered the church there in the first century, God, we thank you that your Holy Spirit is here empowering us as believers today. And so God, we pray that you would speak to the heart of your church and God, that we would be blessed and encouraged and challenged as a result. So God, we thank you, we praise you, and your son's wonderful and beautiful name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen, amen. I'm going to take a sip of my water, you take a sip of your coffee, and then we're going to dive in just a little bit more. All right, so we have Pentecost. The day of Pentecost had fully come. What is Pentecost? Well, Pentecost literally just means the 50th. And what Pentecost was, it was the 50th day after the waving of the sheath there after uh, Passover had occurred. And, and, And it was one of three festivals that all Jewish men were required to come to the temple three times a year. Pentecost was one of those days that everyone had to go back to Jerusalem. It was a very, very important day. And so we have here uh, all of the church, 120, they are there in the upper room in one accord. Now that isn't a Honda accord, because that'd be like a Guinness Book of World Record thing, 120 people in one little Honda. Uh, No, this this means they were all gathered in one place. This is what it says in verse 2. 
It says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. You see, what happened here on this day, the day of Pentecost, these folks, they're gathered together here in the upper room, and God shows up. And three very distinct things happen when God shows up here in this moment. We, 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 we have an audible phenomenon that takes place. We have a visual phenomenon that takes place. And we have a verbal phenomenon that takes place. We, first, we hear this sound as if it were a mighty rushing wind. Does this mean that the barometric pressure changed there in Jerusalem and that uh, a mighty wind came sweeping through and everything was blowing, there was a dust storm? No, it doesn't say that. It says there was a sound from heaven as if it was a mighty rushing wind. You see, those disciples, those who were there in the upper room, they definitely heard something and it was mighty. Why was it the sound of a mighty rushing wind? Well, if you're a Bible student, you might know that Job, the Lord speaks to him from a whirlwind. And we see Jesus, when he's talking with Nicodemus and the wind's blowing above, Jesus says, the spirit moves and he speaks and we don't know where he comes from, only the father who sends him. You see, in the Jewish understanding of things, God moved and the spirit moved and it was likened to the wind. So much so that the Hebrew word and the Greek word for wind and for spirit is the exact same word. You have in the Old Testament them who speak the, the, the Hebrew language, and in the New Testament they speak the Greek language. And what's so beautiful about it is that in both languages, the word for spirit is also the word for wind. In Hebrew, you have the ruach, and the ruach is the spirit, but the ruach is also the wind. You have in the New Testament, the pneuma, in the Koine Greek, pneuma meaning wind, and pneuma also meaning spirit. But not only was there an audible phenomenon, you, you, you had a visual phenomenon, and it, and it was divided flames uh, or, or, or tongues of fire that are sitting on each of their head. Was there literal campfires chilling on people's heads. Well, they really wouldn't be chilling. They'd be burning. Uh, but no, it doesn't say anything about there being heat being emanated from this. But what they see is they see something in the likeness of a fire and, and it's divided tongues sitting on the head. And why do we see fire? Well, throughout the Old Testament, when God shows up, Moses there, when he's commissioned and called, God speaks to him from a burning bush. When he's leading the children of Israel out of, 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 of Egypt into the promised land, he leads them by day as a burning fire. We see fire rain from heaven and consume the offering there at the altar on Mount Carmel with Elijah. God shows up like fire. And so here we have on the birth of the church, the day of Pentecost here in the first century, we have God showing up in the way he has always shown up in fire and in the sound of wind. And it's something that they could tangibly see, physically hear, and, and, and know that God was in their presence. And the last thing that occurred was not just the audible, not just the visual, 
but the verbal. And they begin to speak because they are filled with the Holy Spirit. This isn't just the Holy Spirit that they received when they gave their heart to the Lord, but this is that second, that infilling, that indoing of power that was promised. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And they are filled with the Spirit, and they begin to speak tongues that they don't know as the Spirit gives them utterances. Well, let's read the rest of the chapter, and then we're going to dive in, because I think there's a couple points that we want to hit on as we look at the promise on Pentecost. So there's a crowd, and there's a crowd stirring around. It's, it, it, it's Pentecost, so Jerusalem has swelled to, to the top with people, and there were dwelling in Jerusalem, this is verse 5, Jerusalem, there were Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Underline in your Bibles, every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and they were confused because everyone heard them speaking the tongues of their own language. And they were amazed and they marveled, saying to one another, look, all, are all these not Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own language in which we were born? There was Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arab, all hearing them speak in their own tongues the wondrous works of God. So they were amazed and they were perplexed and they were saying one to another, what could this mean? There were others mocking and saying, they're full of new wine. It's five o'clock somewhere. These guys have got drunk in the morning. Verse 14, Peter steps up. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For we are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters, they shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servant and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in heaven above. And signs on earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter continues in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourself also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and the foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, you've crucified him and put him to death. But God has raised him up, having loosened the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by them. 
For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow the Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the way of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of our patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried in his tomb, is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ and sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor his flesh seeing corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured this out, which you now see and which you now hear. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he says this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to their heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what should we do? What must we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. For the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you, and to your children, and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call. Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, full of boldness, preaches this message. This is one of those times in Scripture, and as, as we, being a church that goes uh, chapter by chapter, book by book, verse by verse, we run into these interesting portions of Scripture. Not interesting because of their theological complexity, not interesting because of the content which they have, which this is interesting for both those things, but we run into these interesting places where you have someone giving a sermon, and the sermon is recorded for us. I'm reminded of Jesus giving the Sermon on the Mount. How do I, as a pastor in the 21st century, 30 years old, how do I extrapolate a sermon that Jesus gave? Here we are, faced with that same dilemma. Peter just preached an amazing message, full of the Holy Spirit. And as we're going to see, the church grew by 3,000 people that day. How do I, in 30 minutes on a Sunday morning, extrapolate on what Peter already said? So I'm not going to break down a whole lot of this. There is a whole lot to break down and to study and to learn, but I just want to let it simmer for a few minutes. As we look at the promise on Pentecost, the promise of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the enduing of power, and the church being born and really armed and ready to rock and roll and change the world, the promise on Pentecost. And as we look at the promise on Pentecost, our first of Four points. I really have five points, but four points I really want us to take home. The first is the plan of Pentecost. The plan of Pentecost, we can see it in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. 
You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. This was God's plan. It was his promise. Jesus had told the disciples in John chapter 14, John chapter 16, that the promise of the Spirit was coming. You will receive power. So that's the first point, the plan for Pentecost. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. The second is the purpose of Pentecost. The plan was to receive power, but for what purpose? Well, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 goes on to say, to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the ends of the earth. You see, the plan was to receive power, and the purpose was to use that power to radically change the world, to change it there in Jerusalem. But not just in Jerusalem, but Judea and Samaria, and into the ends of the earth. It begins to flow exponentially. And remember, I told you just a little while earlier to underline that phrase, from every nation under heaven. Because that's going to be the main crux of what happened here on Pentecost. The third point that I want us to look at is really the proclamation on Pentecost. We have the promise of Pentecost, the plan for Pentecost. We have the purpose of Pentecost. And here's the proclamation on Pentecost. Peter proclaimed, there were those, they were in this crowd, they were from all over the world, and they were like, what's going on? What is this? What could this mean? Others were scoffing and saying, oh my goodness, these dudes are drunk. And Peter stands up and he proclaims, we are not drunk. We are not goofing off. It's nine o'clock in the morning. We're not being crazy. Something occurred. God showed up and this was a God moment that was promised all the way back by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God would pour out his spirit on all flesh, not just on Jews, not just on specific prophets, but in these days, God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. The proclamation is that the gospel is now going forth everywhere. Young men, young women, old men, old women, free men, free women, bond servants, maid servants, slaves, both male and female, Jew and Greek, everyone. The gospel is for everyone. And now it has the tools and the juice to fuel it, to take it all across the world. And Peter proclaims this so boldly and he goes into so many awesome things because he looks at Old Testament uh, prophets and he looks at David and he looks at these things that are scripture to the Jews and he affirms them as the words of God. And here we have the proclamation on Pentecost, God's word going forth so boldly with so much strength, so much so that in verse 36 through 39, the people, they say, what do we do? What do we do? We need to respond to the message. And we have them. Peter gives the proclamation. Be baptized, repent from your sin, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus will be your Lord and your Christ, and anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Plan for Pentecost, purpose on Pentecost, proclamation there at Pentecost, and now we're going to see the fourth point, the proliferation due to Pentecost. The proliferation due to Pentecost, because we have here, you underlined it in your Bibles, there were people gathered there in Jerusalem from every nation under heaven. You see, there's this idea throughout 
the Old Testament, throughout Jewish understanding of things, you had God created the heavens and the earth. He created Adam there in the garden. He created Eve, and he had right relationship with Adam and Eve, but Adam sinned, and it separated us, and God was working to redeem mankind and bring them back, but mankind just got worse and worse and worse and worse, and they fell to so many different temptations and demonic powers there before the flood that then God has to send the flood to wipe it all out, to start clean. And then we have the clean start, Noah and his sons, and they were told to go out and spread across the earth. Sin was still going to exist, but God could still have relationship with his people. But what did they do? They rebelled against God yet again. And rather than spreading out across the earth, they gathered in one place, a place known as Babel. And it was there in Babel that they, that they tried to reach heaven. They tried to reach God. And, and, and God was like, you know what? The people are too smart for their own good. They're, they're, they're just rebelling against me in everything they do. And so he comes and he confuses all the languages. And it is there at Babel, we see it in Genesis chapter 11, the table of nations, that God takes a single people group and he splits it into 70 different peoples. Deuteronomy chapter 32 says that God established angelic uh, rulers and princes over these in the supernatural realm, some 70. But they rebelled. And Deuteronomy chapter 32 tells us that they set themselves up as gods. And so now we not only have a rebellious people, but we have false religions and the proliferation of sin and evil and wickedness due to this demonic activity, things going on in the supernatural realm, things going on in the physical realm. People are just rebelling against God. So much so that the psalmist in Psalm 82 tells us that God judges these wicked false gods. And at the very end, I touched on this just before Easter a couple weeks ago, that, that, that at the end we see God is going to arise. It's that Greek word in the Septuagint, anastasis, which is resurrect. And he is going to arise. He's going to resurrect from the dead and he's going to reclaim the nations for your inheritance is the nations. It was a part of God's plan. We were once in right relationship with him, one people, dispersed because of our own wickedness. But it was in God's plan that he would send his son to die a death that we all deserved and that in raising from the dead, he would begin to reclaim the nations and draw all men back to him. What's so impressive about this, what's so amazing about this is we see it right here, Acts chapter 2. There were men from every nation under heaven. That phrase is directly related to the table of nations in Genesis chapter 12. And they're hearing the gospel and the good works of God proclaimed in their very own language. This is a reversing of what happened at Babel. And we're going to see that Jesus came in the fullness of time because this is the greatest time for Jesus to come because Alexander the Great, he had come, he had conquered all of the known world and, and everyone now speaks Greek as a main language and they have all their other languages and then the Romans took over after Alexander and they paved roads connecting as far east as Parthia to as far west as Spain. And now we have the pump primed for the proclamation at Pentecost to lead to the proliferation because of Pentecost. As the gospel is going forth in people's own languages, they're hearing as the Spirit is giving utterance the gospel in their own languages. They go back after Pentecost and they tell their local synagogues, man, Jesus, there's this rabbi, he was there in Jerusalem, he did some things, it was crazy, and he's changing the world and the Spirit has come. And we see 
the seeds being scattered throughout the Roman Empire and beyond, out to Persia, out as far as China, down into Africa, up into Britain. The gospel is going forth. Now the disciples, empowered, filled with the Holy Spirit, the proliferation is ready because they have received power that comes from the Holy Spirit to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the ends of the earth. And it's from this point that we see the church expand and just explode. And so that's going to lead us to the fifth point. I know I said I had four, but here's the fifth point. I had to think of a P because this has just been a bunch of alliterations on the letter P with Pentecost. And the last point is this. It's our bonus point. It's the practicum of Pentecost. What do I mean the practicum of Pentecost? Well, what is the practical application of what happened here, Acts chapter 2, nearly 2,000 years ago? What is the practical application for you sitting in your room in 2020? Well, here's the practical application. As a follower of Jesus Christ, the promise of the Spirit is you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be witnesses. Here's the deal, folks. If you put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence inside you. And and, and as you heard uh, just two weeks ago, Pastor Dave, as he was talking about the promise of power, as he was talking about the promise of the Paracletos, we can receive that second filling, that doing of power, and we can become mighty, powerful witnesses for the Lord. So the practical application, what are you doing with the power that you've received? What are you doing? The purpose of Pentecost was to be witnesses. There's all the different gifts. There's all of this. But Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, and I'm going to close with this. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, as he's standing there at the base of Mount Hermon at Pan's Grotto, the place that was known as the gates of hell, he says, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not withstand it. The church is going to pummel the gates of hell because of the power of the Holy Spirit. What's the level of pummeling in your life? Are we taking the gospel with offensiveness? We're taking the flag. We're planting it in new places and saying, we are bringing the gospel wherever we go. Because if we're not, we've got to take a look at ourselves and ask the question, why am I not? It's what I've been commissioned to do. It's my purpose. It was God's plan for me. As a follower of Christ, we can't just sit idly by, but we need to be people who are full of the Spirit, full of the Spirit to take the gospel where it has never gone before. But not just that, take it where it's been. Take it where the soil has already been tilled, the seeds have already been planted. We are called to take the gospel with us everywhere we go. I think of Corinth. Corinth was a great place. Well, it was actually a really crazy place back in the day. And it was there in Corinth that Peter had gone and Barnabas had gone and Apollos had gone. And when Paul shows up, he says to the church, some say you're of Cephas, some say you're of Apollos, some say you're of Barnabas, some say you're of me. But at the end of the day, the church belongs to Jesus. So the seeds, they've been scattered And it's on you and I to operate in the power that we have because of the infilling of the Holy Spirit to bring the gospel powerfully and effectively everywhere we go. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for your word. 
God, we thank you for the promise of your spirit. We thank you for the infilling power. God, we pray that as we're in an interesting state with COVID-19 and the stay-at-home orders and all these things, God, we pray that you would still powerfully and effectively fill us with your spirit, and God, that we would have opportunity to take the gospel with us everywhere we go, to speak it and proclaim it boldly, just like those did there on the day of Pentecost, full of the spirit, the promise on Pentecost. God, you had a plan. You had a purpose. God, we saw the proclamation, and we see the proliferation to this day. God, help us in our practical application of the miracle that happened on Pentecost. God, we love you. We praise you. Your son's wonderful and beautiful name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen.